Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. I just think, you know, like, we should be taught in school how our brain oh, works. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, we are I, trying I, to figure I, out who we are, what's going yeah. on in the world. You know, if you just knew how this worked, <laughs> life is much Things easier. would make sense, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. Show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Brain fog is one of the common symptoms that we see as GPs in primary care, yet the least understood, I believe. And on today's podcast, I speak with Dr. Sabina Brennan, PhD, about her incredible career from soaps to science, as she describes it, and everything to do with brain fog. Dr. Sabina is a chartered health psychologist, neuroscientist, and host of the Superbrain podcast and best-selling author, and her new book, Beating Brain Fog, takes your symptoms seriously and shows that you don't have to live with them. And on today's pod, you'll learn about why teenage brains explain their lack of inhibition, i.e. the development of the teenage brain, loneliness, and its relationship to poor cognition, what brain fog actually is and how it can occur as a result of hormone fluctuations, estrogen and pregnancy, and also the relationship between inflammation and viral infections, plus the concept of neuroplasticity and the difference between brain and cognitive reserve. We talk about so much more, and I think you're going to love this podcast because Sabina is a fantastic communicator for science and her mission is to get everyone looking after their brain health as routinely as they brush their teeth all the links are on the doctorskitchen.com do sign up and subscribe to the podcast if you enjoy it or follow along on spotify it really does help with the ratings and allows me to do more podcasts like this and if you're not a subscriber to the doctor's kitchen newsletter every week i suggest something to eat watch or listen And actually, for the next five weeks, we're doing a special 
um, mindful cocktail uh, edition as well, where I also suggest something to drink, which is low or no alcohol. Uh, I think you're really going to love it. And you can sign up at thedoctorskitchen.com. On to the podcast. Tell me about your your TV career. <laughs> we were just talking about that at the start of this. What? So I, I didn't I didn't realize that you 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 were doing yeah. TV before. Yeah, yeah. I left soap for science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, soap for to, science. That yeah, should be on yeah. a T-shirt. Yeah. Well, actually, I I stole it from a journalist who at the time oh, when right, they discovered. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I um yeah I was an actor. We have a soap opera here in Ireland. I'm based in Ireland, so it goes out five nights a week. It's called Fair City, and um yeah, I was in like 160 episodes. Uh, wow. uh Yeah, I played. I was a really lovely. Obviously, I was an actor. I was going to say, <laughs> I was an actor back then, um and um yeah, it was a it was a really 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 cool part because it's a good it's a long time ago now but um yeah I played a victim of domestic violence so um uh, and she had kids and blah 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 uh, and that I suppose it sort of advances the story then ultimately uh she stupidly um it was a great storyline actually because it was back when was it <sighs> I left the show in like 2003 so um it was the first time certainly on our tv that you know, that topic was really covered mm. and they, you know, had to open helplines after the show. Like it was kind of one of those. Yeah. But also, it, it, you know, addressed another issue, which back in Ireland was, um, you know, quite kind of groundbreaking back then as well. So she had taken him back and she had she had three kids and then she took him back. He, he found her again and she kind of took him back. He said he was changed and all the rest. And mm. um, sorry, I'm smiling here because I remember a woman. I'm, I remember being in M&S shopping and a woman saying, don't take him back. Don't take him back. <laughs> It's funny the memories that just pop in. But it's your head. so visceral when you watch it because I used to be a big fan of like EastEnders when I was growing up, and you yeah. really you you just see that person as that person that they're playing. You don't think about anything yeah, else. You yeah. don't think well, about I them think as what an actor. it is, George Clooney. Not putting myself in the same category as George Clooney, <laughs> but he he once said because obviously he started from soap, and mm. um, so basically he said when you're a soap actor, you are in someone's living room every night of the week while they're having their dinner or whatever. When you're a, a movie star, well this was kind of before Netflix and all that sort of thing you know people have to go out and they're seeing you on the big screen and so there's this mm. huge distance between you but when you're a soap star you're in their house you yeah. know and and um yeah it's kind of, it's interesting but I, I think it's a great medium for exploring issues you know big issues like 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 that issue but the thing that she did then was she became pregnant again and she didn't want to expose another child to the abuse in case it happened again so actually mm. she went out and had a procedure and that's mm. what happened he the doctor rang to uh, say something and he took the call so ultimately anyway i was strangled wow. to death live on tv oh wow oh my god because that's <laughs> yeah. another subject as well in ireland that's like another huge subject yeah wow. yeah 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 it was it was it was it was good at the time but anyway it left me unemployed <laughs> <laughs> and so prior prior to that had you been interested in in science was that something that you 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 like yeah at school, so prior, well prior to being an actor that wasn't my first career that was my second career um prior to being i left school at 16 and uh, no i had done my leaving search which is you know a bit like your a level so mm. um and i had also done o levels which was unusual here but um 
and I worked in a life insurance company because that's where my dad worked and he wanted right. he wanted one of his kids to work there that was the height of his ambition you know and uh, none of the other four got in so I said oh mom I'll do it <laughs> so I worked in a really boring job for 15 years oh anyway 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 um uh yes I did and actually it relates to my dad uh, as a kid I just loved my dad loved to read and he had big kind of big books, you know, like they weren't encyclopedias, but but like that. And for younger people, encyclopedias were like the Google, but in hardback, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you bought volumes of them. <laughs> I love how we have to explain that to the new kids now, don't well, we? Well, it kind of <laughs> is, you know. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so I remember this particular book my dad had and it was like, I don't even know what it was called, but I used a treat for me was to take it. And then after he got up and my mum had got up, get into their room uh, in bed, the son used to come into their room uh, in the morning and go through the book. And I remember there was like Meldon, uh, what's this? Was it Meldenson? Mel, I can't say it. Uh, he did the genetics with this, the peas, you know. Oh, Mendelian. Uh, Mendelian, yes, yeah, thank yeah. you. And, um, you know, it had, uh, you know, evolution and uh, it just had all that stuff and it had images and pictures and obviously, the, and I just loved it. I found it fascinating. So actually the funny thing is really one of the reasons, um, I, I should tell your listeners, so then after I finished on that show, then um uh, kind of Ireland is a little bit different. I, I knew I'd become unemployable for a while because it was such a high profile file story and there's not that much television was being made in Ireland back then. And also there's always much less parts for women. It's changed a lot now, but back then mm. um, there really wasn't. So um, I thought that I might do a night course and my eldest son also had been diagnosed with a learning disability and um, uh, a dyslexia as an umbrella term, you know? Mm. And I was kind of trying to educate myself on that because I felt that um, the school was failing him and it didn't, he didn't really just fit into that diagnosis properly. You know, yeah. he, um, he had a, a reading age beyond his own reading age. His issue was with written language, you know. Right. Anyway, um, yeah, that's a long way of saying I thought I'd do a night course. And when I rang the university to inquire about the night course, they said, um, oh, would you consider doing a, you know, a psychology course? Would you consider doing um, like our applications for mature students? Um, you'd be eligible, you know? And I said, oh, okay, Grant, when? And she said, well, the application closes at five o'clock today. This is about 20 past four. <laughs> anyway, long story short, I did interviews, exams, and I just found myself doing a full-time degree in psychology. And I thought I would combine it with acting, uh, but I just loved it. I just ate up the books. And a lot of people said to me, going from acting to psychology like that's a big jump and I went no it's not that's why I was an actor like I, I was I trained as a theatre actor from the age of eight and did all my exams and qualified as a drama teacher but mm. I wasn't really interested in theatre because I wasn't interested in performing every night I wanted to figure out what's going on inside that person's head and why yeah. would they behave that way and when they're saying yeah. that what are they really saying inside their head so, yeah, I was one of those students that young students absolutely hate. And actually, the, some of the lecturers told me afterwards to be nice to be terrified when you put your <laughs> hand up for a question. 
because I'd have read like I read all the books before I couldn't understand why we had to stop for summertime I could could get my degree finished quick you know but I'll say to any of your listeners that actually are older so I was 42 when I went to university so uh, I'd say to any of your listeners who are you know terrified or put off because I was like I was afraid Mm. um, you know because I left school at 16. I hadn't studied anything. And I'd always felt that people who've been to university, they have some knowledge that the rest of us don't have. And I kind of realized, no, they don't really. No, definitely <laughs> and not. actually, you know, life experience, handling mortgages, raising kids, all those sorts of things are much harder than doing an undergrad degree. PhD 100%. is different. So mm. um, I did my undergrad in three years. And then I got a, I got a scholarship going into my third year from the the, the government of Ireland here to do um, a PhD in Trinity. Um, and yeah, so then I did a PhD, uh, neurocognitive and electrophysiological indices of cognitive uh, performance in aging. There you go. <laughs> wow, that's a mouthful. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. How the, PhD, would... the PhD was less fun. Yeah, do you oh, do, uh, yeah, electrophysiology. So for listeners, it's like, um, mm. you know, if you go and get your heart measured and they put stickers on it and it's they're measuring the electrical activity in your heart. Uh, I was measuring electrical activity in people's brains. So you, I'm sure you've seen it at these caps and they've 64 electrodes. And basically I measured that when they were doing certain um, memory tests or attention tests and then I also did for full neuropsychological profiling on them and essentially just trying to identify you know where people were performing outside the normal range in terms of memory function could we see any patterns and don't ask me mm-hmm. answers it's in my PhD go read yeah, yeah yeah no, of course yeah, yeah. well it's, it's interesting that because in your book you do have a section which is dedicated to the different areas of the brain which are responsible for different processing you know executive function learning all that kind of stuff um, so obviously that PhD is kind of come through and and the other thing i was going to say on on the note of um uh university and and undergraduates versus mature students is and i don't like that term mature students it it seems to suggest that you can be as old as hell and exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly yeah you can go in your 80s and 90s and be mature but um i think had i gone to med school as uh as my age now i'm 35 I probably would have been a lot more attentive, a lot more sort of engaged in the learning process rather than, you know, kind of enjoying my youth at the same time. Like, I think I would have gleaned a lot more from the actual course. Something I actually feel really, really strongly about. I think education is wasted. It's it's the wrong time. So I feel about this. (laughs) Society has just set itself up for convenience. You know, it starts kind of with the industrial revolution about, you know, working nine to five and, you know, Mm. those kind of things and eating three times a day, you know, and and, uh, all those kind of things are set up to uh, facilitate the way a society thinks that it's good to work. Now, a lot of that stuff was set up before we had any tools to look inside the human brain and, you know, before we understood the impact that the brain has on what you do, but also what the impact in reverse because what you do changes your brain and can change your brain for better um, or for worse now the teenage brain there's 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 kind of that uh, uh, there's a little bit of a a dilemma for me there the teenage brain and and i'm talking from adolescence actually through to the age of 24 goes through a critical period of development it's the second critical period of development the first is from the age of two to seven but between the ages whenever you kind of hit puberty 
and I'm right up to 20 to, to, to 24, your brain basically remodels itself. Mm. It remodels itself from back to front. So the last part uh, to be remodeled and to mature um, is also the last part that evolved in humans. And that's the frontal lobes. And when you understand that, you then understand why, t- why teenagers take risks, <laughs> make poor decisions, don't mm. learn from mistakes. They actually don't have the tools. You know, that yeah. frontal lobe is not developed and they can't. Mm. And also the brain is dealing then with this rush of hormones that that come out at puberty that the brain has never had to deal with. And the hormones are chemical messengers and you have receptors for those messengers all over your brain. And so the poor teens, like they really are all over the place. And I do think we need to parent our teens more than we do now. You know, there's a lot of parents, you know, you kind of giving too much. I think they need support to gradually learn, you know, um, you know, how to kind of function and, and become an adult and assess risk. And that kind of comes with time. But one thing that's really positive about the teenage brain or interesting that relates to learning is that neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to change with learning is enhanced in the teenage brain. So it's a great time to learn new things. And it's very important that that brain is stimulated at that point, because there's also an awful lot of pruning goes on, which is literally taking away neurons and brain cells that aren't being used. So it's a use it or lose it. So it's very important from that respect. But that learning doesn't have to be just academic. That learning means that they're enhanced for, you know, learning about the world, how it works, learning to be human, all those things. And I just think that actually going to university straight from school is not the best thing. Now, it depends on what it is you want to study. But, you know, that's when you want to sow your wild oats. That's when you want to party. It is actually the time when you're learning how to be human. You're learning how to interact with people. You're learning by mistakes. And boy, you make a lot of mistakes. But that's how we learn. You know, I hate that the word failure has a negative consequence or connotation. Um, You you can't learn without failure. That's that's how the brain learns. It's trial and error. The only problem when it becomes negative is if if you take that first error as an end result. It's not. That's just a shaping of the behavior, you know. Yeah. Um, but I really think kids should, you know, look, give all kids a place in university. Let them go off, discover who they are, what they really like, find their joy is what I call it. You know, that thing that they where you lose yourself. I, I just firmly believe that yeah. if you find the thing that you love and um, that's how to find yourself because you lose yourself. I know, yeah. I know yeah. listeners, it sounds crazy, but if any of you have ever found yourself in engaged in something where hours pass and you don't notice and people could talk to you and you don't notice uh, and you've just enjoyed it, that to me is finding yourself. You're one with yourself, but you've kind of lost you've lost the sense, the self that your brain has created from information uh, that it takes in and often that information is erroneous you know like some teacher told you you'd never amount to anything and that yeah. niggles at the back of your head mm. so you lose mm. all those kind of constructed notions of yourself and you're just you're just one with yourself you're present yeah. um, and I think I think it's much more important for when we're younger to explore and find those things and then find out whether, number one, whether you want to go to university, because I don't believe that, you know, everybody has to or, or needs to. And mm. um, number two, if you do go to university, what you actually really might like to study. And there's another reason why that's really important, because curiosity, um, when you have an in, in 
intrinsic curiosity, when you are naturally curious about something, again, neuroplasticity is enhanced. So it's easier to learn about something that you're naturally curious about. Yeah. And that the fab thing about that is as well, that even if you then, if you move, and I've said this on my own podcast, <laughs> that enhanced ability to learn continues for a bit after you switch from the thing that you naturally find interesting. So I just think teachers should just let kids, you know, invest 15 minutes in something that they're naturally curious about and then go, right, folks, we're going to do the theorems now because your ability to learn is enhanced. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good, that's such an interesting new model of teaching because quite like even now when I was doing my master's in, in nutritional medicine at University of Surrey, Uh, It was very didactic. It was like an hour long lecture. And even if I was like interested in the subject, that wanes after about 20 minutes. It does. It does. Yeah. You just need a break. You need something to refresh your learning uh, capabilities during that bit because we're not, I just don't think we're designed to sit down for 60 minutes and try and We're and actually not really designed to sit down full stop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Our bodies aren't really. Well, actually, I did. A, I was a guest on a radio show here in Ireland. And if anyone's listening who is kind of studying, I did some sort of tips from neuroscience around studying. And I talk about that, like attention naturally wanes after about 30 seconds naturally 30 seconds yeah just naturally it'll it will drift unless you actively sort of pay attention so um and the crinkly part of your brain the outer part of your brain the neocortex is the most energy um it's resource heavy it require anything that that uses that part of your brain requires a lot of energy so that's things like you know paying attention focusing decision making problem solving language holding conversations social interaction they're resource heavy you know and you do feel tired after it so Mm. like that if you're listening to a lecturer and you're actively paying attention that's tiring and you definitely should have a break after 30 minutes some research suggests possibly 90 minutes because a lot of our 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 rhythms in our body do seem to have a 90 minute you know the 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 cycles of sleep are you know kind of 90 minute sort of segments but definitely there should be a break definitely there should be standing and moving around and actually some sort of interaction rather Mm. than just I mean I, I this is something that I'm kind of passionate about as well and I often say to people you know, if you want to enhance your memory, use all of your senses. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at a baby or toddler interacting with the world, they use every sense. Stuff mm-hmm. goes into their mouth, into their ears, you know, mm-hmm. they yeah. roll on stuff. And then they go to school and they're told to sit down, you know, fold your arms and just listen, you know. And yeah. what that happens is like, you know, information when it comes into the brain is enhanced the more senses you use and it also means that when you know a memory is being embedded in the brain you know consolidated like there's this old model like the way memory we talk about memory we, we we talk about it as if there's like a store like a place where all your memories are kept like a physical place with the box but it's not your brain communicates by electrical and chemical signals so memories are patterns of electrical activity that can be mm. activated or triggered or retrieved but that's how your brain communicates electrical and chemical signaling so if you 
the more senses you engage and and roughly speaking your difference your senses are located in different parts of the brain so vision at the back of your head language on the left side um you know movement on the right you know you know that's i mean it's more complex than that but yeah. broadly speaking but then if you engage more of your senses those networks of memory, that pattern is going mm. to be across all of those rather than just across language. And that's really, really important if you're uh, unfortunate to enough to develop a, um, a neurodegenerative disease like dementia in later life. So language is all often impacted. And if that's your only access to a memory, that means that memory's gone. But mm. if you've been engaging all of your senses, language is just one part of it. Mm. And so you can reignite memories to, through sound and smell and 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 other things so i think we kind of have to relearn to re-engage our, our our senses plus it's good for your mental health because you get much more yes. you get m much more out of life you know absolutely absolutely mm -hmm. you know that that brings you full circle to the thing that you were talking about earlier about teenage brains and the frontal part of the brains and how they're still developing and how with certain types of dementia frontal lobe dementias you see that disinhibition yes and the disinhibition is sort of what you see. I mean, it just, I just put the dots together now where you see with kids who, with who are yeah. adrenaline junkies and, you know, they don't see the risks inherent in yeah. whether it be, you know, substances or uh, activities, sports, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. They, they haven't developed that sort of inhibition. Yeah. And to disinhibit behavior is quite resource heavy. Like, mm. it, you know, it takes a lot of work and it kind of is like, I'm kind of fascinated with the concept of, what some people might call personality or self, you know, and, and essentially an awful lot of those, again, they're patterns. The brain loves patterns and really our personality is our patterns of behavior. Mm. Um, and, you know, a lot of those are like, we're not the same person with our granny or our mom as we are with our mates. And, you know, your brain is brilliant. Like it learns through those patterns. Oh, you can't say fuck in front of mom. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you know, and, and, and that's kind of, you know, hard work. But it, it, yeah. that's for me is quite interesting because it's, it's that your brain just learns all these things. They're learned behaviors and learned patterns of behavior, which I think is really positive if you do have patterns of behavior that are causing you harm whether it's poor heat eating habits, whether it's, you know, mental health issues or whatever, you can relay, re, relearn, you know, and retrain your brain mm. for new, more helpful or more healthy um, patterns of behavior. But they, you know, I mean, the old patterns don't disappear. They're mm. still there mm. and they tend to resurface with in times of stress and poor sleep. But um, I, I think that's kind of very liberating to kind of, mm. you know, to kind of realize that your brain, Absolutely. your brain constantly scans for patterns of behavior actually just to be um, efficient. So basically, I think this is why a lot of people um, during lockdown have experienced brain fog. So obviously that's what my latest book is beating brain fog but i you know that was in exist well not in existence it wasn't written but i had you know i had got my book deal to write it long before covid existed yeah, yeah but yeah. you know brain fog has come to the fore now because uh, people with long covid are experiencing brain fog but also pretty much everybody was experiencing mm. brain fog having trouble concentrating actually a lot of people even have said to me you know i've never done so little in my life in terms of i'm not entertaining i'm not socializing i'm not doing xyz and my brain is completely underperforming i feel exhausted mm. every day and i can't 
you know, I can't do my work as efficiently as or as effectively as I used to. And I say, well, look, here's obviously there's stress in, impairs your brain function. So too does disrupted sleep, which most of us are experiencing this last year. But I think the main thing is that if you think about this, right, so your brain only weighs 2% of your body and it consumes 25% of the nutrients circulating at any time. So it's a high energy organ. Mm. And basically, um, in order to use that, uh, the resources that are available to it efficiently. Um, what it does is it, it, it scans your behavior for patterns, okay? Um, patterns that it can automate. So the outer part of your brain is the conscious part of your brain, the most resource heavy, the thinking part of your brain. Underneath that, if you turn your brain upside down, you have a part of the brain called the limbic brain, and it's um, uh, often referred to as the emotional brain. And that's unconscious. And then below that, you have your brainstem, which is also unconscious and often it was the first part of the brain to evolve. And it manages things that you don't have to think about again, like breathing, heart rate, digestion, that sort of thing. So basically your brain, in order to be efficient, scans your behavior. So I'm talking things like, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, alarm goes off, get up, go have a pee, have a shower, sing, whatever you do, brush your teeth, breakfast, dress. You know, and often, you know, it could be 9.30 before you really actually consciously uh, engage in a behavior yeah. that requires your thinking brain. So that's a whole routine of a pattern. And your brain just loves that. It goes, I can automate that. So basically what it does is it checks in at the start and goes, mm, and it hands over responsibility for that entire routine to a part of your brain in, in the emotional part of your brain called the basal ganglia. And it becomes automated, unconscious and effortless. You don't have to think about it. Okay. So you go back to March twenty. 20 and we were all told to go home and figure out how to work well most of us some doctors weren't yeah. <laughs> but um <laughs> you were told to go home and basically what people did was so they had a, an additional challenge how to figure out how to work at home you know but also most people just dropped their routines completely mm. um to the extent that people certainly in the first lockdown, sort of acted as if it was um, Christmas and they're staying up late watching Netflix and then yeah, lying in in the morning. Yeah. And then maybe some people had to homeschool and, you know, maybe starting, you know, starting work at different times during the day and maybe taking a break to, to take some exercise, go for that walk we were allowed to do and then maybe mm -hmm. homeschool and then maybe work in the evening. So the brain couldn't even. So number so, so pre pandemic, about 40 percent of our behaviors were habitual. OK, so that's what these are. We, you and I would call those automated behaviors is habits. And then you think the pandemic hit pretty much most of those habits were dropped. So your brain is just overwhelmed with stuff it has to think about. And then on top of that, you're not engaging in any behavior in any sort of patterned way. So your brain can't find new patterns to automate, except some of the bad ones we picked up, like it's six o'clock. Do you think it's too late, too early yeah, for yeah. a gin? And it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, and sitting watching TV and eating junk. And so actually those became habits far mm. quicker than they might, you know, they, they may not have. So my I think just think the solution to that is really, really simple. Just reintroduce your 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 old routines. Just go for it and go. Yeah. I, I suggest to people, you know, take a commute in the morning and one in the evening. And I even suggest, you know, have a shower after you finish your your day and change clothes, because if you're having work at home, 
in the same place it's kind of good idea to to yes. um kind of separate the two but Definitely. um yeah yeah well at least you're you're kind of in the uk you're kind of going back to yeah yeah so we're, we're anyway we're, we're, we're going back to normal uh, generally over the next couple of weeks anyway. But I, I totally get your point about those uh, habitual routines. I mean, even for us going to work was a completely different environment. We had different areas to get used to. We had different, obviously, uh, equipment and stuff and PPE rules and the guidance was changing all the time. So it was a constant sort of headache where your headspace was being filled with all these new protocols. Yeah, yeah. And then well, simultaneously... Yeah, it's yeah. new behavior and the old habits are gone. Totally. So it, it really is, it's like, it's just a resource issue. It's overload. I haven't, yeah. haven't got the resources to figure this out. Yeah, it's interesting we're talking about this because uh, in my latest uh, pod, I was talking just on, on my own about how I habituate certain patterns in the morning such that I don't overload my decision-making capacity. And so I, I literally, I know what I do. I do my meditation, I do some exercise, I do my obviously personal hygiene routine and all that kind of stuff before I start even looking at my phone where I'm going to get a barrage yeah. of texts and emails and all that kind of stuff. And the other thing, just before we move on, um, one of the things you, you mentioned about learning and our capacity for learning, one of the things that I found really useful about podcasts in general is that when you pop your earphones in and you go for a walk, you're being um, sort of hugged by a whole bunch of different stimuli, whether it be your walk outside, the trees and pictures. And because podcasts are like just someone having a conversation with either you or someone else, it's very easy listening. I think that for me is a really nice way of learning things. And and you've got your own podcast, right? The, the Super yeah, Brain yeah, Podcast. Yeah, Super Brain Podcast. Yeah. And we were just talking kind of before. I love it. You know, I didn't yeah. realize how much I would love it. It's, it, I mean, for me, certainly on my po podcast, when I interview guests, we talk about thriving and surviving in life. And I just love the intimacy of it. Mm. And I, the, the feel that I want for my listeners is that they're there with me and, and my guests. They just happen not to be speaking, do, do you know, that they're just mm. part of the conversation. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people feel that. Um, and um, I think it's especially as well, I, I think during lockdown, social isolation, um, you know, is a is a is a a big issue it's a, it's a big health issue um, and we tend to think of it as something maybe that affects older people but pandemic aside you know social isolation affects people of all ages loneliness um, and um, I, th I think it's a way to feel connected you know to 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 you know if you know in the absence of being able to be connected you know in the physical world with people for whatever reason um, I think a podcast gives one of the closest things um, to kind of that social intimacy that we need, mm. that we need for survival. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I think I did a, I also do so, little solo episodes where I explore a topic from a neuroscience perspective. It's pretty much like I'm just talking to you, you know, now. Yes. But I think I've done one on loneliness and I actually give talks about loneliness because I'm, you know, it, it is a big issue. Um, and, um you know, basically, loneliness is it's what in psychology terms we would call an aversive signal. Right. So that just means it's an unpleasant 
signal, unpleasant. So hunger is an aversive signal. Thirst is an aversive signal. And the purpose that it serves is hunger serves a purpose to say you need to eat. You know, your brain needs fuel. Mm. You need to eat. Right. And, and you know, it, there comes a point where you get so hungry, you say, no, I can't do anything else. I have to eat. Um, I won't be able to think, you know, and that's because your brain actually isn't getting the fuel. Similarly with thirst, you know, it's all in the interest of survival. Loneliness is an just a signal, just like hunger, that says you need to get connected. Mm. Um, but for some reason, we ignore that signal. And because there's something about, and I do think a lot of it is around, you know, the books we read, the, the, the TV shows that we watch, you know, that people who are lonely are portrayed as somehow less than others. I mean, I do a thing when I give a talk on loneliness and I say, hands up if you've never felt lonely. <laughs> now, they've only once had one person who put their hand up. Really? I'm going to go, OK, <laughs> that's a bit weird because my response is, is if, if you've ever felt lonely, it just means you're human. That's mm. all it means. And you need to take action. And it's really important that you take action sooner rather than later because it actually changes your brain and it changes the structure of your brain and how it functions. So basically we're meant to be we're social creatures we need other we need other people plus social engagement is a really stimulating activity for your brain it's brilliant for brain health like it's it, it's one of those things that i advise that you need to do in order to keep your brain healthy is yeah. social engagement well when you go to sleep when you've been socially isolated for whatever reason uh, your brain which is still talking you know from evolutionary learning it's still operating from that perspective goes oh you're 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 a bit of risk here you know there's yeah. no one else in the social group here to look after you when you go asleep so actually it interferes with your sleep and you won't go into a, a, a deep sleep and you need a deep sleep because that's where not only the you know we talk generally about restorative, but if you don't sleep deeply, you know, your memory function will be impaired because that's when memories are consolidated. Um, your hippocampus, which sort of is, acts like a temporary repository for information coming in during the day, that won't get cleared out properly. So you'll struggle to take in new information the next day. But probably even more importantly is your brain, um, as I've mentioned, is a really high energy organ so it produces a lot of metabolic waste and it can't clear that waste during the day you know the rest of your body produces metabolic waste and your lymphatic system clears it away but your brain can only clear a little bit of it so essentially really it needs you to go asleep so it can do like the bin lorries going around yeah, at nighttime yeah. on empty streets you know it hasn't got the resources to clean while you're using your brain so when you're asleep it can do that deep clean and clear those toxins. And people often say to me, how do I know if I've had enough sleep? And I say, well, if you wake in the morning feeling refreshed, that's a pretty good indicator. If you wake feeling groggy, you know, the chances are you've still got metabolic waste. Um, you may have adenosine, which is the um, sleep pressure chemical, you know, so you'll feel tired. Um, but also like one of the toxins um, that builds up with sleep is beta amyloid. And that's one of the key, um, the, the, the key, it's one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And we know that there's a link between poor sleep and, and risk for Alzheimer's disease. But uh, and we don't, we, the royal we, you know, scientists, you know what I mean by that, the yeah. literature says. But basically, um, you know, it, it's not clear which way the, you know, whether, you know, poor sleep is a consequence of the buildup or vice versa. But either way, sleep, yeah. sleep is one of the most critical um, things to, to human survival and human brain function. 
even if it's not proven out uh, specifically through, you know, uh, Alzheimer's, there's definitely an association there. We know it has an impact on appetite regulation, sugar balance, inflammation at large. You know, there's so many other reasons as to why you need to really prioritize sleep. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, mm. got, you, you, you eat more the next day if you haven't yeah. had enough sleep yeah. and you crave those calories from fat and sugar. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and actually, even I know you're the, the medical doctor, like I think it only takes four or five nights of, you know, less than four hours sleep for you to go into a pre-diabetic state. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. that's that's and, and type two diabetes, you know, um, uh, impairs cognitive function, you know, yeah. and yeah. brain fog is, a, you know, is a key kind of symptom of, of type two diabetes. It's almost like these things should be um, health, public health messages in the same way we recommend people limit alcohol and quit smoking. You know, we should really be talking about fatigue as a as a as a grander thing because it has Absolutely. so many connections with, with disease. Absolutely. And if people want to go into my website, superbrain.ie, I actually got a million euro after I did my PhD. Very nice. Naively, I, I knew uh, for anyone listening after you get a PhD, certainly nowadays anyway, um, you know, you don't walk into a job in university. You kind of yeah. you have to you have to you have to basically apply for funding to see if you can get money to do some research and, and get a salary. So as soon as I finished my PhD, I applied for funding and naively applied to be a coordinator on, on an FB7 project for the European Commission, which apparently really is aimed at people <laughs> who have about 15, 20 years experience and been running their lab. But anyway, basically, it was kind of something because I had, a, I suppose, that communication background, that acting background and yeah. and the science. And to be honest, when I was in doing my PhD, uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, some of the stuff from the PhD came through to my book really doing the PhD is what pushed me more into this side of things the the, the communication and the translating mm -hmm. complex science because I couldn't believe when I was doing my PhD that there was so much literature about the fact that you know there are risk factors for dementia that are lifestyle you know modifiable things that you can do to reduce your risk i mean we know now that about 40% of all cases of alzheimer's disease are attributable to like 12 modifiable risk factors things that you can do something about like i mean we could you know we could really you know reduce the incidence of alzheimer's disease um now back at that time when i finished my phd was back in 2010 so basically um the the european commission were looking for someone to basically do an an infomercial about how brilliant their investment in health research was so I just wrote a proposal and said, you're mad. Nobody would be interested in that. That's just a waste of taxpayers' money. But here's what um, they might be interested in. I said, in the European Commission, you have committed to adding two extra healthy years to our lives. So we're all living longer, but we're not living healthier. So those extra years we're getting, particularly for women, are, well, because we live longer, but they're characterized by chronic health conditions, most of which, again, are preventable because they are lifestyle induced. Um, but I said, look, in order to speak to your overarching goal of adding two extra healthy years, one of the best ways you could do that is to promote brain health. Nobody was talking about brain health in, in that context. In, in fact, even when I was doing it, I was kind of going cognitive health is what we were kind of talking, you know what I mean? And I, and I kind of thought, oh no, if I'm going out with the message, I need to use a word that everybody understands, you know, like the brain rather than cognition. Um, but um yeah, I said, look, here's what I suggest. Let's go out with a brain health awareness program um, and 
within that, so that overtly that, provide people with information about how they can keep their brain healthy, how they can reduce their risk of developing dementia, et cetera. And you are doing amazing research in that area. You're funding amazing research in that area. So let's thread that research through the public health information. And they gave me the money. <laughs> and, um, and I did it and it still exists. It's called hellobrain.eu and it's a website full of information on how your brain works, how you can keep it healthy. And it sort of started me on the animation route, um, because when you get this fun kind of funding from European Commission, you have to, you know, have at least three European countries involved and, and you know, whatever. So I worked with fabulous animators in the UK um, and I found animation is just a great way to get mm complex information across to people um, and I've gone on to kind of make animations around all those various topics but um, all that stuff is there free and um, you know if anyone wants to find out more about brain health and how you can keep it and how your brain works even I, I can see that I I just think you know like we should be taught in school how our brain oh, 100%. works. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, we are trying to figure out who we are, what's going yeah. on in the world. You know, if you just knew how this worked, <laughs> life is much Things easier. would make sense, yeah. <laughs> like if you knew that when you were a teenager, this is why you're feeling so irrational or why you're feeling so anxious, you know, it makes sense. And, and the fact that you're still developing this sort of light at the end of the tunnel as well. It's like, don't worry, you're not going to feel like this all the time. It's just yeah. that simple explanation. And I think, you know, we are mature enough to understand that at that point as well when we are teenagers. But, but kids are, look, I trialed, uh, uh, I, I trialed because I'm passionate, you know, and I was trying to figure out ways to do stuff. And and I trialed, I, I've done up like a little Brain Health for Kids program, like a six-week program for kids at oh, school. Amazing. And I trialed it in um, what we call their DESH school. So it would be school where kids are from very poor backgrounds you know some of them wouldn't you know they we don't have school dinners like you have you know mm. um but these kids would be given food because they mm. wouldn't be getting you know you know food at home and you know maybe their parents would have addiction issues and there mightn't be electricity at home or whatever so i said well if i'm going to see if this works i'm going to see it in whether it works in one of the most challenging areas and it fits beautifully with the things they're learning about in school and this is kids about age nine is just about right mm. and oh my god so i gave them a talk about the brain and brain health first and they just six it's very simple you know like this one week is about you know um physical exercise you know and and how that makes your brain work better and and they're perfectly capable i talk about brain derived neurotrophic factor which is bdmf but 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 i talk about it as miracle grow for the brain it's just yeah. like a fertilizer it just yeah. helps helps the cells grow well i gave them a little talk and sat down i always do q a and i sat down on the floor with them they all sat down well you know what the questions they were brilliant they were brilliant and they really stretched me some of them you know when <laughs> such and such happens what's happening in your brain when that happens you know and like there's they certainly have the capacity to understand it like it's not complex i think and that that's what happened to me basically um you go into academia and everything really revolves around uh, academic publications and yes, I just yeah. I just actually really in a way felt kind of ethically and morally compelled that to share this knowledge like I kind of went how come I don't know that that dementia has these risk factors that I could mm. actually reduce how come I don't know that how come everybody doesn't know that and then I kind of went 
everybody has to know that this yeah. is not fair absolutely, um, absolutely. and um yeah and 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 so um yeah i i mean i have obviously published academic papers but i think it's just far more important to take that science and give it to people in well, a exactly, way that they which can is... understand it <laughs> Which is why <laughs> this book is fantastic, Beating Brain Fog, because it's getting the messages across in a way that's very uh, accessible for people. It's shareable as well. There's a simple plan associated with it. And I think, like you said at the start, a lot of people can explain to you what brain fog is to them, right? Everyone has experienced brain fog in some way or another. As a GP, I get this all the time. I just get slow brains and stuff. And, you know, the constellation of symptoms that you talk about, I reckon a lot of people reading this will identify with it immediately. Like, that's me. And the explanation as to why people might be suffering from that as well. So why don't we start right at the, right at the start and, and describe exactly what we mean by brain fog? You want me to describe? Yeah, Please, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, absolutely. So, I mean, I use brain fog as an umbrella term um, to mm. describe a collection of symptoms. And as you said, they're symptoms that most people will have experienced on and off, you know. Um, uh, so it would be lack of mental clarity, uh, trouble focusing, trouble paying attention, trouble concentrating, a sense that uh, sort of everything is slowed down. It's taking you longer to to get what somebody just said, figure it out and formulate an answer. Issues with memory, you know, um, you know, forgetting to do things or, you know, not recalling what you did this morning. And a lot of people with long COVID that I've spoken to say, I can't even remember like what I had for breakfast. And I remember one woman saying to me, my father visited this morning and I don't remember it, you know. Um, uh, learning and learning and memory are inextricably, inextricably linked. My, my tongue and teeth aren't working properly this morning on the big words, but there you go. Um, but um, because learning really is the first step in the memory making process, you have to learn information and, and uh, there's those connotations of it being academic learning, but your brain just taking information in is learning about that information. And then that can be kind of consolidated. Language issues are very common. So the word finding issues, but also substituting the wrong word. <clears throat> and then also a general sense of when it comes to language, that um, uh, maybe your your language isn't as rich as it ordinarily would be or it's not flowing as well mm. um, as it would. Uh, and then one that people are often surprised about is um, clumsiness would be the lay term. You know, we'd kind of say problems with um, spatial navigation and people mm. tend to think that's a physical thing. But your brain is constantly assessing the distance between you and the furniture and the doors, um, you know, around you uh, so that you don't bump into things. And mm. so when that goes off with with brain fog, you will find yourself bumping into things or dropping things. Um, and then that mental fatigue. And I think it's I'm doing some work actually with multiple sclerosis um, internationally uh, at the moment, really, to try and um, get consultants to consider more around the brain fog that people with MS have, you know, the cognitive function that their brain health is critical because there tends to be a focusing on um, the physical um, and visual uh, aspects of it. And I think it's really important that we distinguish between physical fatigue and mental fatigue because there are two different bodily symptoms. And yes, physical fatigue, you know, your body will feel tired and, you know, you can feel the glucose build up in your muscles or whatever. And, you, you know, you, 
you you um you you need to sleep but you may still be able to function cognitively with 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 mental fatigue you, you don't necessarily have any physical tiredness it's really just that and, and this is the way i would describe it i'm just too tired to think i can't i just yeah. can't I, I just can't I, I i just can't do this um and the thing then with mental fatigue is it actually changes your perception of how physically tired you feel and it changes your duration your endurance to actually feeling physically tired. So if you're mentally fatigued, you will feel physically tired sooner than you would if you're not mentally fatigued. And I think we hear a lot about fatigue associated with various mental, uh, with various conditions, hearing a lot about it with COVID, but a lot with autoimmune diseases and inflammatory Mm -hmm. conditions, et cetera. And I think it's important to, to separate it out because I think a lot of people think fatigue is just tired or a bit more than tired you know and there's a sense that oh well look you know get up and move about but it's not that you know it's the mental fatigue that really Mm. um impacts on it but what i should say about is is about brain fog is everyone will have experienced probably all of those things i've just outlined at some point in your life you know if you've ever had jet lag you'll experience some of them you know if you've had disrupted sleep if you've been burning the candle at at, at, at both ends or if uh, you're you're stressed or working too much but the thing about brain fog is that it's um persistent uh, mm-hmm. the symptoms occur regularly and they actually interfere with your quality of life or your ability to carry out your job or uh, relationships even mm-hmm. um and there's m- many underlying um causes and I kind of divide them I, I basically the way I describe brain fog is it's not a disease or a disorder um, it's not a condition in and of itself it's very real that doesn't mean it's not real it's very very real but it's not a disease it's a sign or a, sim- a, a, a signal it's a warning sign that something is amiss something's not going right in your brain because your brain normally functions seamlessly and that's why people forget about their brain as an organ um, so it's a sign or a signal I often kind of use the analogy like a cough so you know if you have a cough and say uh, you can link it to oh I've been talking for three hours or you know or um, actually my mouth is dry I, I, I need to to take some liquid or I have a bit of a cold mm-hmm. um, yeah you know you can link that cough and it will it will it, it will resolve itself when you drink water or when the cold is gone but if you have a cough that persists over a period of time and then impairs your ability to function for example you can't finish a sentence because you cough when you go to bed at night you're woken up because you cough and that then is interfering with your sleep etc you know that that's a trigger that you mm. should go see your doctor and your doctor will then go and see if they can find an underlying function uh, underlying cause which could be a chest infection but it could be other things that are more sinister as well Mm. Um, and my feeling is that if you go with brain fog the response should be the same you know well okay let's see what's underlying this because it can Mm. be many things and I think a lot of GPs uh, and I'm I, I'm not put you know I'm not tarring all GPs with the same brush. My own son is actually on, on the GP training scheme, and actually oh, I was really oh great yeah, yeah yeah I was actually looking. He really he really wants to do emergency medicine. Oh amazing! Just <laughs> loves it. He's in A and E at the moment and just <laughs> loving it. But also actually just as you say that he he uh, he did a first degree and then did medicine. So he studied ah, medicine as a okay. mature and got much more out of it. Yeah. Um, you know. Anyway, I'm digressing, but. Um, <laughs> Yes, I do think, um, you know, that 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 and that's part of why I wrote the book as well is, you know, that 
I wonder sometimes whether GPs see the brain as within their remit, <laughs> you know? That's no, a very I, good point. It's a very I, good point. I, if it's not within their remit, who is, you know, it's just another organ in the body. And I think part of the problem, and anyone will find if they read any of my books, I don't refer to the concept of mind. I, I actually call it an unnecessary middleman. It's something that we... It's a, a word, it's like a linguistic construct to explain behavior before we had the technology to actually look inside the brain and realize that actually our thinking is a behavior, you know, our emotions are behaviors and they all, you know, are results of electrical and chemical signals and influenced by what we eat, etc. And I just think that perhaps with GPs, they're thinking more about the mind or even cognitive functioning rather than, well, now hold on, there's an organ here and this is just, yeah. it's no different than a heart beating differently. Um, and lifestyle plays a huge factor. So just for listeners in terms of underlying causes of brain fog, so one of the things that they can be is is a symptom of an underlying health condition and they tend to be chronic conditions so um autoimmune diseases inflammatory conditions chronic pain conditions um depression anxiety uh, chronic pain conditions uh some cancers um uh and then they also brain fog can really quite easily be um a side effect of a medication and mm -hmm many unfortunately many of the medications which incidentally all the things that you just mentioned there are all within the remit of general practice these are literally the things that we see on every a day, -day. Basis. Yeah. and actually you know the thing is what and i do say this in the book is that you know if you go with and i have autoimmune disease and i have migraine and i have you know and i have experienced brain fog myself and often i will say to people look it's often multiple things and for me actually my brain fog was worse when i was doing my phd because mm -hmm. i was perimenopausal um you know i had sjogren's i had chronic pain i had, had migraine and then i was under extreme stress doing a phd so that's kind of when it you know it, it, it really kind of i really was concerned but mm -hmm. um often as well you know GPs will go for that tangible. I mean, I remember when I tutored students, I was tutoring them about behavioral science and they just thought it was kind of iffy and, and you know, kind of too ephemeral and they wanted mm. the, the physiology. And I'm kind of going, well, actually it is. This is all electrical <laughs> and chemical signaling. Yeah. You know, this is just what the, 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 the behavioral response is. But um, uh, yeah, the, the the GPs and the consultants, and and I mentioned MS. You know, um, that's an underlying health condition. That's 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 frequency. So I, I should have said yes, neurodegenerative or you know um, um, conditions that affect uh, the brain itself. Um, uh, uh, but like that, you know, they're more concerned about you know mobility, whether the person can walk, etc. But often, and and even on diagnosis, people with MS worry that they'll end up in a wheelchair and won't be able to work mm. anymore. They lose their independence. But actually, the Research shows that the main reason they have to give up work and lose their independence is through um, cognitive fog, brain fog. Mm. You know, that's the main reason, because if you think about it, we have ramps and all the rest. And anyway, as well, the, the, the medication for treating MS has just come on in, in leaps and bounds. Um, so people are actually doing much better um, yeah. uh uh, with relapsing and um, remitting MS anyway. And so the, unfortunately, then the other thing is um, that can lead to brain fog is medication, side effect medications. And unfortunately, side effect of many of the medications used to treat, to treat the conditions I've mentioned do give rise to brain fog. And basically yeah. any medication that operates on your central nervous system has the potential to impact 
on your brain function doesn't necessarily they won't often do that and I, I i say over and over again look if you think that a medication is leading to your brain fog never ever ever stop taking a medication that's been prescribed for you but do go and talk to your gp because there may be an alternative that actually won't have those symptoms and people will have heard of uh, chemo brain and chemo fog chemotherapy gives rise to uh, to brain fog but people may be less aware that antihistamines uh, anti-nausea tablets uh, painkillers uh, mm. antidepressants they can all give rise uh, uh, to brain fog uh, it's, it's actually one of the reasons why i'm sat here sniveling away because i've uh, i've used antihistamines in the past for my hay yeah. fever and my hay fever is relatively mild but i've had really severe brain fog as a result right. of using um ceterazine and i've even tried the non-sedating ones loratadine and fexofenadine in the past and i remember the first time i experienced it i was actually uh about to deliver a lecture uh culinary medicine in at bristol university uh to the medical students there and i i popped a, a pill before and i just it was just treacle in my brain i just couldn't interact with the kids and i, I call them kids they're you know, students yeah but like uh, i just couldn't i couldn't you know converse with them and stuff and uh, i knew straight away i was like i i know what it is uh yeah I'm, luckily I'm, I'm aware of uh, the potential side effects yeah of yeah i don't take it because like that yeah i mean i used to take um i've taken various medications over over the years and it is that payoff often you know yes, um yeah. so when i had um really bad pain several years ago and I was prescribed uh, pregabalin um, mm. which is an anti-epileptic and it made the you know I eventually agreed to take, take it because I couldn't function I mean I could barely walk you know yeah. the, the pain was just awful um, and like that I had stopped exercising because you think that's what to do but actually one of my ways out of it was ac actually exercising again you know and yeah. actually looking after myself but um, uh, that can really um, interfere with your, your cognitive functioning unfortunately well, I, I seem to have I, I think they call what I have when it comes to sedatives I have uh, paradoxical reaction so some okay. sedatives I mean I'm obviously a very talkative person anyway but yeah, yeah, yeah. imagine me <laughs> give me some sedatives and sometimes I can just go really <laughs> high as a kite sort of thing so yeah I remember my GP saying to me I mean, how are you even standing upright you're on this much um pregabalin and I said no I'm fine but I do feel my brain is a little slower but I, but 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 I wasn't yeah yeah anyway yeah. I'm digressing but yeah lots of different med uh, medications and so that's part of what I'm doing in the book is to kind of help people number one get a handle on what their actual symptoms are so that they yeah. can go to a GP and discuss with the GP well I'm having this and could it be this this and this it's not about self-diagnosis mm. but um but also allowing them to go like that you know kind of go oh maybe it's my antihistamines Do you know yeah. Yeah, that yeah. never occurred to me and yeah. actually maybe I can live with sneezing more than I can live with uh you know the brain fog which is you know, I mean, for some people, it really does. I mean, I said earlier, we are patterns of behavior and mm. brain fog can change those patterns of behavior. And you really just don't feel like yourself. The other biggie that um, causes brain fog uh, are hormonal changes and hormonal yeah. imbalance. And that's one reason that it really does heavily impact on women. Mm. Lots of women will have had baby brain, pregnancy brain and menopause brain. And that was one big concern for me was that there was so many women of that age 
terrified that they were getting dementia and catastrophizing that they were getting dementia because they were having memory problems and language problems and sort of afraid to tell anyone. And so the anxiety and the stress makes it work. They're not sleeping because of the hot flushes. So that makes it worse. And um, I just felt, you know, uh, and, and some of them going to GPs and being told, oh, yeah, it's the menopause. Yeah, yeah. You know what? It is the menopause, probably. But can you explain why it's the menopause? That it's not mm-hmm. just this, you know, basically you have estrogen receptors in your hippocampus, which is a part of the brain involved in learning and memory. And if that changes, that's going to impact on your ability to learn and remember. But also your lifestyle and what choices you're making impact on how balance, in balance or out of balance your hormones are. And that's... That, that's, you know, all of those things I've mentioned, chronic conditions, painkillers, uh, hormones, etc. Um, following changing lifestyle factors can hugely improve the brain fog. Uh, and, you know, and, 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 you know, so many of these things kind of interact. Dietary deficiency is another issue. You'll be well familiar with this, but I feel very strongly um, I don't know how you feel about this, but I there's a hundred billion dollar industry in supplements, uh, yeah. a lot of them playing on people's fear of dementia. You know, memory boosting brain supplements and, you know, just brain supplements and think sharper supplements. You can get all the nutrients and macro and micronutrients that your brain needs from a Mediterranean diet. You mm. do not need to spend a penny on supplements unless you have a diagnosed deficiency. And that would be a vitamin B12 deficiency um, uh, uh, can cause quite severe brain fog and actually can even mimic uh, dementia um, in mm. older people. And when you get older, your gut can't ex- absorb you know, B12 as much, but also then, you know, all these are interlinked. Like if you have a chronic inflammatory condition, if you've Crohn's disease or something like that, you're not going to be absorbing B12 in the same way. Um, But basically you don't go out and buy B12 supplements. You go to your doctor and you see if you're deficient. And if you are, they'll prescribe possibly injections or monthly injections or whatever. And it's in a form of an anemia. Yeah. So also folate deficiency or an iron deficiency can impact. And a lot of women are iron deficient. Um, you know, if they've had heavy periods or anything like that, you know, they can, and that can even kind of change through the the cycle uh, and impact on your brain function. So if you have those you know, if you're diagnosed with a deficiency, yes, of course, those supplementations will help. Um, if you're vegan, vegan or vegetarian, you may also need um, because uh, I think it's very hard to get B12. Yeah, yeah, it's hard yeah. to get B12 in a purely vegetarian and vegan diet. And even in omnivorous diets that we're finding that people are still quite B12 deficient. And that can be as a result of gut inflammation, which uh, changes the absorption. And obviously that uh, plays into anemia at large and yeah. why uh, particularly women who are menstruating age uh, are at risk of uh, of uh, hemine deficiency. And, um, uh, yeah, go on. Yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, like, it's always it's multiple things. They all mm. kind of feed into each other. And and the positive thing that I was coming to is the lifestyle factors yeah. are the key ones. So if if you if you prioritize your sleep, manage stress, exercise your body and your brain, and eat a healthy Mediterranean diet no matter whether you have a couple of those underlying conditions, your brain fog is going to really will clear quite a lot. I mean, you know, Mm. and I I mean, I've had people from with long COVID 
Um, oh, and I meant to say that actually at the start with underlying health conditions, it's really common after any virus or, you know, if you've had sepsis to have mm. brain fog for a very long period of time, you know, and I've spoken to some people with long COVID who've gone to the doctors and said, oh my God, my brain function, I can't go back to work. And they'll say, oh, you know, this is COVID. We really don't know. We're only learning. And I'm kind of going, no, you know that any after any virus, somebody may get brain fog. You know that up for up to a year after sepsis, this is just the brain responding, you know, after after a virus it's there's inflammation there's you know strange immune responses but also there's the resource issue that your brain has just tried to save your life remembering where you put your bloody keys or the name of your second cousin is irrelevant until you're safe yeah, you know yeah, yeah. it's and, interesting because we, we see that with um post itu patients and there's definitely post, you know that post itu so post oh, uh, prolonged itu stays where you've yeah. had a number of different insults, not only inflammation and yeah. uh, infection and, and, and changing uh, your immune capacity, but you've also had biological clock disruption because you're constantly in an environment where the lights are on and yeah. you're being artificially sedated and all that kind of stuff. So it's no wonder in those scenarios you have prolonged symptoms. And, um, and, and oxygen deprivation as well yeah. you yeah. know and it's funny you just say that again i made a series of animations what people have commissioned me you know over the years when they see kind of what i've done and actually uh, it's just when you said that it came to light i was asked by a um would you believe a, a, a neonatal consultant um so i'm sure you're aware of this but you know if if a baby is born with an unexpected brain injury so they're expecting a healthy baby and something has happened the treatment is um hypothermic what, what is it? Hypothermic. hypothermia. Yeah. Yeah. And essentially what they do is they reduce the temperature of the brain by three degrees for about three days. And that prevents any future damage to the brain. And it works very well and very effectively. Mm. It's very frightening for the parents. But also mm. what they spoke about is, you know, so basically I was just commissioned to write some animations to explain, do a little animation that explain that and also explain how a neonatal unit works um, you'll find them on my uh, website or my YouTube channel. But basically um, what they were saying was one of the biggest issues is the neonatal units are bright. They're noisy. The baby's brain doesn't get to train. So that's one of the big tips I give if you want to train good sleeping habits. You've got to respond to light. Your brain has evolved to sleep when it's dark and take signals to set its circadian rhythm by daylight. You've got to get out in day. You know, when you wake first thing in the morning, open the blinds, get out in daylight for at least a half an hour every day. Electric lights only around a couple of hundred years. <laughs> like our brain has evolved over millions of years. Dim the bloody lights at nighttime at eight o'clock. <laughs> give your brain a chance it needs those signals to say oh it's nighttime you know kind of sleep and then make your room really really dark at night and then turn these goddamn blue devices off at night yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, actually when i did that thing with the kids all the different things they were told to do across sleep and exercise and everything these were the kids in the in, in the school the desh school um the one thing they couldn't do was turn their devices off an hour before bedtime really wow. yeah they couldn't wow, do that telling. Yeah, yeah, very telling. And it's very damaging. Like, you know, I mean, look, one of my tips, I love technology. I have no idea how it works. <laughs> just, <laughs> just tell me how to use it. Um, but one of the tips I give to people, you know, for managing exactly what you just said, you, you know, in the morning time, you have your routine, you know, your meditation, whatever. 
I re- recommend people if they feel overloaded, outsource your memory. My, my memory is completely mm. outsourced to my to to my devices. As soon as there's an appointment made, it goes into the device. If I have an idea for something in a book, I have a filing system and that goes in there, etc. That you know that gets it out out of my brain. And actually, if you're anxious and you're worried about stuff, get it out of your brain and yeah, put it down yeah. on paper. Then your brain doesn't have to keep reminding you about it. Totally. Yeah, I have a second brain for everything. My calendar. If it's yeah. not in my calendar, I don't turn up. Like I, like everyone knows that around me. They have to book in to my calendar if they want me to be somewhere because I don't want to hold that information. Yeah. I want to use that, you know, my capacity for other things that I feel are more important. And that actually this brings me on to one of the concepts that you talked about. Um, so, you know, we've talked about brain fog. We talk about how it's a, an umbrella uh, c- c- constellation of, of symptoms that's uh, fairly vague, but, you know, uh, can be explained by a whole bunch of different things, whether it be medications, uh, hormone fluctuation, uh, inflammation, brain reserve versus cognitive reserve. I love okay. this this differentiation concept. Uh, could you explain those both? Yeah, it's a little bit artificial, to be honest, mm. you know, but it, you know, it, it, it does serve a purpose. So um, basically, I suppose I like to think that if you adopt a brain healthy lifestyle, it's like investing in brain capital that you can cash in at some point in the future to cope with or compensate for uh, disease damage or decline and or even something like COVID, right? So it's like building up bank reserves. You know, that's kind of the analogy. And actually, I talk about it a lot in my first book, which is actually about, you know, keeping your brain young and reducing your risk of developing dementia. But basically, you know, this kind of stemmed from and this is one of the reasons I was really sort of inspired to get into, you know, this kind of area that I'm in is that like a lot of this stuff, I did my PhD in what, what did I say? 2000 and from 2007 to 2010. So I'm reading relig- literature from my my PhD and trying to understand, you know, how the brain ages. And then I'm finding literature that goes back to 1986. For example, one researcher called Katzman was trying to understand what was going on in the brains of people with dementia, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and so basically he was looking at people's brains post-mortem right? Um, Slices of brain sort of thing, that kind of way. And um, so he had a control group. Okay. So his people with, uh, he had the group of people with Alzheimer's disease living in a nursing home who had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And then he had control group, people the same age living in a nursing home with no diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So he's looking at the brains to try and see what's the difference. And he discovers 10 cases of cognitively normal individuals who have sufficient pathology in their brain for diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Right. So they have the disease in their brain, but they don't have the dementia. So I tend to talk about Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's dementia the disease is the stuff the hard stuff in your brain the plaques and Mm. the tangles that are causing the problems the dementia is the manifestation of that the symptoms the confusion the memory loss the language issues all those kind of things so how come these individuals could have all that disease in their brain and no symptoms so basically the concept of reserve concept of cognitive reserve was introduced to explain that gap you know Mm. what is it and over time there's been just a that's really my area of research that i've worked in and it's spilled over into other diseases now you know um uh, multiple sclerosis and arthritis and various other kind of conditions looking into it but um basically what they found is that that resilience it's really a resilience to a disease um, that reserve is linked to uh, certain lifestyle factors. And those lifestyle factors also happen to be risk factors for 
Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. So basically, by living a brain healthy lifestyle, you can build up a buffer and it harnesses neuroplasticity as well. So basically, when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, it's not about how much disease you have in your brain initially. It's about how much healthy brain you have. So more is better. So if you have more brain connections, which you get uh, through neuroplasticity and, and, and doing all the various things that are good for that. Bigger is better. So you have more healthy brain that can cope with and compensate with for the disease pathology. Now, it's not a get out of jail free card. Unfortunately, over time, you know, you'll get more and more pathology and you will have less healthy brain and there becomes a critical moment. So often what I explain is I'm using hand mo mo movements here, folks, and, and, and I know you're just <laughs> listening. But basically, if you think of someone, say, two 65 year olds and they both start to get the pathology in their brain for Alzheimer's disease, one has high reserve and one has low reserve. The person who has low reserve will start to have slight symptoms from very early on and those symptoms will gradually and progressively get worse and that could be over a 10-15 year period the individual who has high reserve has absolutely no symptoms but the pathology is growing in the brain at the same rate as it is in the other individual now if they both drop dead at 70 and they were in Katzman's study you would have one who has the disease and the other has the disease but no symptoms however if they went on to live longer eventually the individual with high reserve will actually have a precipitous drop. They'll fall off a cliff edge and they will then sort of catch up with the other mm -hmm. individual and go into very severe symptoms. And often people who know people who have Alzheimer's disease would say, oh, when we think back, you know, this was happening over time, very gradual. And other people say he was fine. And then a month later, like, you know, it's like everything is gone. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, essentially what we're doing, there's no cure for dementia. So prevention is key. Uh, we have a lot of knowledge about prevention. If you can build up reserves, at least what we can do is change the trajectory of the disease. So you can have more years in possession of your full faculties and living independently at home. And I mean, I don't know anyone who wants to live in a nursing home. Do you? You know, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, people want to live independently at home and so at least that helps and pretty much all of those things are within our within our control um you know in terms of of that so that's so you did ask i didn't quite answer your question so cognitive reserve and brain reserve the the Cognitive reserve, so brain reserve sort of refers to the structure. Uh, so the brain cells, the connections between them. And cognitive reserve refers to how efficiently and effectively you can use that structure. Now, gotcha. initially we used to think that most of the research focused on cognitive reserve, but actually um, now we're seeing that brain reserve, you know, actually building up the you know the the structure etc um you can maintain your brain volume as well so mm. anyone listening there this is not just stuff that impacts on older people so if you're 30 <laughs> or over your brain is already starting to shrink um you know there's That's a, a scary thought for a lot of people you know <laughs> it really is yeah, but I hope it's scary in a good way to kind of in a good you, way, yeah, to stimulate to action, kind of stimulate yeah, yeah, and kind of yeah. go because I think you know we all feel immortal, you know, and something yeah. like lay life disease. Oh well, they're only those old people, you know. I'm not one of those, but you are. You will be. It's just your future <laughs> self. But basically, from about the age of thirty, your brain starts to shrink, and you lose a little bit of brain volume every year. And then when you hit sixty, it accelerates. And if you have Alzheimer's disease, you know, it's at a you know exponential rate. 
But basically, we used to think that, uh, that's called age related atrophy. And a lot of people still refer to it as age related atrophy. At- atrophy and they say it's associated with aging now i'm of a mind that actually and there i use the word mine i use it linguistically rather than <laughs> but my feeling is that from about the age of 30 we actually stop doing an awful lot of the things that keep your brain healthy so challenging your brain and stimulating your brain and learning um, promote neuroplasticity, which mm. means you have denser connections in your brain and more brain cells. So we go to school, we go to, co- you know, um, university, and then maybe we start jobs where we're still learning on the job. But from kind of 30 onwards, you maybe can start to coast along a little bit. So you're mm. not challenging your brain. That's one thing. Physical exercise is really important for brain health. We play sports, we run around when we're kids, often kind of by the, you know, the time we're 30. Uh, you know, maybe we've stopped playing. Even professionals start to retire kind of a, 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 at that age. Um, another thing is social engagement is critical for brain health. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you hit that age and you start to have kids and you're not going out as more, you know, on a plus side, maybe you're not drinking as more, but then again, maybe you're drinking more because you have kids, you know, who knows, but you're not maybe socially interacting. And, you know, certainly for me, we talked about loneliness earlier. The time I felt loneliest in, in my life was when I had my my babies, you know, mm. um, it was a time long, long, long before um, mobile phones, before the Internet. I mean, I was isolated in my home, you know, and, you know, my husband wasn't allowed to take calls during the day. Do you, you know, there really was there was no way to connect and it's just you and a baby. And again, that's how society has structured it. We measure success by how big a box we can isolate ourselves in. And actually really, and we see ourselves in a way, you know, as we're, you know, Western society, but we've got an awful lot of things wrong. You know, it's far easier, it takes community to raise a child. So actually, to be honest, you know, if we were more communal based and community based, you know, um, there isn't that risk of isolation. There isn't that risk of lack of stimulation for for mothers. And um, also you learn how to be a parent by observing other parents, because unfortunately it doesn't come with a manual and you're at home, the child is crying for three hours and you don't know what to do with it. Um, But yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of my take on it, you know, that that I I think if we have community and and social integration um, are important. And I mean, you know, I love the privacy of my house. I'm a talker, but actually really. I'm probably a bit more introverted, you know, Mm. when I'm home, I need to be quiet, you know, and I don't like noise around me and I don't like music playing. You know, I I, I, kind of can't focus um, if that happens. So I'm not prepared to give up my house, but I do think we could adapt and have much more central community based places. But for Mm. people of all ages, I'm very passionately against age segregation and our societies segregate. There's no reason like we segregate by age and by disease. There is absolutely no medical reason that people with dementia should be all put living in the one place. In fact, if you look at the science, it is detrimental to their their health and well-being because they need stimulation. So actually they go in, first of all, they go in a home and everybody takes away their right to contribute to their own life. You know, they someone cooks for them, someone makes their bed, someone washes them, you know, a really, you need to be doing with an individual so that they can hold on to whatever bit of functioning 
they have. They need stimulation. If you've got 10 people in a ward who can't talk, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, or yeah. can't integrate, like it, it is purely, I mean, I call them the, the uh, we've, I don't know how we've got onto this, but the leper, <laughs> col- the leper colonies of our time, you know, and I mean, dementia is, yeah. is it, it's, it's not contagious. Um, and there's no reason other than it's a simple uh, economic reason to make more money for the people who, who run nursing homes or to make it less uh, expensive. But actually, you know, all care, if people require care and support, whether it's child care, care of infants, after school care, mental health care, there is no reason why that can't all happen in one place. Mm. And then people learn from each other. And we know that when younger and older are together, everybody benefits. And my own mother had dementia, you know, and I even borrowed, borrowed someone's kid, you know, come visit when mom's here. <laughs> because she loves the babies, yeah. you know, they love babies. There seems, and babies aren't afraid. And also then we can get rid of some of the stigma because people yeah. are afraid of people with dementia. Yeah. Because they never get to see someone and they never re- mm. get to realize that this person is still an, a human being. I totally subscribe to that um, perspective because you know, there have even been studies, I think, where they integrated a kindergarten with an older person's home and they found improvements in their markers of uh, function neurologically. And there was that Channel 4 program as well that actually played that out on screen, which I thought was the most heartening thing I've ever seen. It was so, so well done. I love it. It really pulled at the heartstrings. And there are science behind this as well. Like you were talking about neuroplasticity and, you know, how it essentially allows those synaptic connections to grow. And this this actually brings me on to one of the concepts that I, I found fascinating in the book was how pain is associated with uh, BDNF that can contribute to poor cognitive functioning as well. C- can yeah. you explain that relationship? Um, you have to remind me now. <laughs> no. so, so it was more in the context of like how um, chronic pain and people who suffer from that, uh, from from uh, ME or chronic fatigue syndrome yep. and, or have uh, disabilities that involve pain and how that inflammation can impact uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factors. Oh, yeah, yeah, can... and brain-derived neuro. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Sorry. Yeah, you write a book and then you kind of go, gosh, gosh, I, yeah, yes. I'm the same. Go. I'm literally <laughs> the same. Like, what? did i say yeah 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 yeah. no i kind of do know it because i really wanted to put the pain in because there's so many ways that pain can impact on on brain function but yes that one that's the brain derived neurotrophic factor you know it's it's it it, as i said it's miracle growth for the brain it makes a fertile ground for your brain uh, to grow new connections uh, and that's kind of about learning so if pain interferes with the release of that that's going to have Mm. a negative impact on, on, on the brain. But also I think what's interesting about pain is, and I think I use an analogy I, 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 I sort of speak about in the book where I say, if I ask you to describe some time when you experience pain, you don't say, oh, I had a really sharp pain in my right shoulder or whatever. You say, oh my God, I've never experienced anything like it. Oh, I was in the middle of it. And then suddenly this grasped me and I, I couldn't even think or, do you know, so you have this whole scenario and you had a really sharp pain. So mm. pain is not just uh, our experience of pain rather is not just the experience of the pain itself. It is tied up with emotional experience. It's tied up with um, comparison. So your brain 
as I said, your brain, you know, in order to function, you know, it likes patterns, but it also likes to make comparisons. Mm. It makes relative comparisons. And we do that all the time. And it's a heuristic. It's it's a shortcut for your brain, you know. So your brain, in order to, okay, there's pain. Is it as bad as when you had appendicitis? <laughs> is it the worst pain you've ever experienced? Of yeah. course, if that pain is worse than, you know, what you've previously experienced, it's always going to be the worst pain you've ever experienced. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's as bad as someone else's, you know. I mean, kind of... It, it, it's very difficult. I remember there was a, obviously a young medic training when I was in labor with, with my first child and he was uh, doing some research on assessing pain levels, you know, right. aside from the fact that he came over. I'm to cringing lean on for me. him. I'm, yeah. I'm sure I, I know there's a cringeworthy story coming up. Well, you know, aside from he came over with this thing like a, you know, like a, a blowhorn or like, you know, that you'd squeeze at a match. Yeah, yeah, is that what it called? And he was listening and I'm kind of going, don't lean on me because you just full weight pushing into my belly. But anyway, he, he, you know, he's asking me, you know, can you rate your pain on a scale of one to 10? And once 10, you know, but I hadn't gone through the rest of labor. I didn't know it was going to get worse because the worst pain you've ever experienced is the worst pain until you have worse. So it's very hard. But it's tied in with lots of other things, which is why I sort of say to people um, and why having experienced kind of chronic pain myself um, uh, that when you have pain, that's again, I was talking to you about attention being a a resource heavy um, uh, brain function. Mm. So if you're attending to pain, so there's the pain and then you're attending to the pain, you know what I mean? It's using up resources, which means you've less resources left to focus on what you're doing. So certainly what works for me, and I I think it makes sense scientifically is, um, you know, I'm not one for sitting around doing nothing. I'm a doer. Uh, And that gives me great distance from whenever I have pain. Um, But it also makes sense neuroscientifically. So if I can lose myself in something, my attention is not focusing on my pain Mm. it is fully focused on the thing i'm doing and so i'm not perceiving pain in the same way perhaps that pain is there but i'm not experiencing it in the same way it doesn't mean that the pain isn't real or whatever but it's a great it's a great kind of tool and i think unfortunately what happens and certainly initially for me when i was having very very bad pain throughout my muscles and it was related to poor sleep as well um that that I suppose sort of intuitively and probably your brain does, we have illness behaviors which tell us to, uh, you know, if something is painful, don't use it. And that makes sense Mm. to a point. Uh, Mm. And so I stopped doing everything uh, except I was a gym bunny and I walked the dogs with my husband every day and this pain just got really bad. And so I stopped walking the dogs and I stopped going to the gym and I stopped. And actually that makes it much, much worse. And you really Mm. do start to to seize up. And I just focused on my PhD because that's all I felt sort of able to do. Um, But actually, you know, pain, there's pain is important for us. It, it it tells us when not to use something for a protective point. But then mm. there comes a time where then you get lost. So I used, I think, in the book, the analogy of a broken ankle um, that, you know, if you break your ankle or twist your ankle or whatever, it's extremely painful. You get your signs of inflammation and, and, and whatever, you know, it's red and it's throbbing and whatever, and you have acute pain. 
and you have to rest it. There's a period of time where you actually have to listen to that pain, put your foot up, elevate it, do whatever, don't use it. And that's where pain works. You know, you go to put your foot on the ground and it goes, ah, but that's telling you don't use it. It needs to heal first. Um, but then there comes a point where, so you're going to have lost some condition. You're going to have lost mobility and some function. So there comes a point where you actually need to experience and work through pain so that you can use it again. That's that point, because if you don't, anyone who's had an injury like that, you know that when you start doing it again or if you go for physiotherapy, damn, it's sore. Um, but you have to do it. Otherwise, you lose it. And 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 that kind of happens, I think, with, you know, with certainly that's my experience with autoimmune conditions. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that they're actually it really is. And, and you know, the advice now for multiple sclerosis, it used to be bed dressed. Now it's you got to keep act, active. Um, yeah. And I just think I think it does. It helps. It helps. It helps physically with the you know, with the pain actually ultimately does ease. But it also helps to take your focus away from the pain. I think I think there's a real risk. I think like support groups and all those kind of things serve a purpose. But then there can become a point where people identify with the chronic condition and it becomes who they are yeah and it's all they talk about and all they think about and i think that's very dangerous yes um yeah. and i think that's something that's very peculiar to chronic condition yeah. would you agree I, would, would that be your I, experience as a, i'm as glad a, we talked about that yeah definitely and you know i i would like to say it's not uh it's not everyone but certainly there is that risk of identifying with this is who i am this is what gives me purpose this is what allows me to engage in this community and it becomes your sole focus and yep. it almost sucks you into never really wanting to step out of that not consciously this is not consciously at all for the individuals it just becomes and i think as well this again is going back to um these are my theories on life really but you know (laughs) no but we have certainly i don't think it applies in all cultures certainly in ireland i don't know how it is in the uk but we smother our kids in love and attention if they're sick you know, if they're being good, you ignore them. Shh, they're quiet. <laughs> you know, and and so you know, we learn through experience, and kids learn that when you're sick, there's something special, and you get special attention and special treatment. And actually, really, it should be yes, of course, to support the child, but give them special attention and treatment when they're doing things and achieving. And then illness is something that needs to be recovered from you know, as soon as possible, rather than something that makes you important or feel loved. And I do think that then that happens in chronic health conditions to an extent that there's a sense of a blending of a feeling of self-worth. And that can serve great purposes, you know, in that people can achieve great, great things and they can become advocates and all the rest. Mm. But it also there's a really fine line. And I think it's something that should be managed, you know, and even made people aware of just watch yourself that you don't kind of go yeah exactly that that those subtle changes that can reinforce a behavior that might be at the detriment of your overall well exactly it might actually well. prevent your recovery it might actually exactly. prevent your recovery yeah. yeah 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 we've talked about so many different things <laughs> so you know we're, we're, I, I love how we've unpacked um brain fog what it is the underlying causes we've spoken about some of the things that can help people in terms of 
exercise, learning, social engagement, Mediterranean diet. Um, there's tons more in your book as well. And I love how you sectioned them out into different areas of you know, sleep and exercise and nutrition. Are there any um, other points that you'd want to uh, talk about from your own experience that you've felt have, have helped you in your own journey? I think, yeah, I do actually. There's one thing, and it's it, it's among my favorite tips on on on. So obviously, I think sleep is you know is is really critical. But mm. I think this go, cuts across a lot of those conditions, and also probably af- applies during the pandemic. That um, one of my favorite tips for boosting brain health is to smile um, and to have laughter and joy in your life. Um, and thinking back, certainly when I was going through the perimenopause, you know, that must have been shy to live with, excuse me, but like I lost <laughs> my sense of humor. You know, I definitely lost my sense of humor. I didn't see any particular joy in life. I think during the pandemic, people have forgotten that you can actually have fun even in these circumstances. Yeah. And the reason I say it is laughter is, 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 is nature's natural stress buster. Um, it actually lowers cortisol levels. And if you think about it, you know, at some of the most awful points in our lives, you know, I don't know if you've ever lost a loved one, but I know certainly in my father's funeral or whatever, you know, and I don't mean in the church, I mean, afterwards, you know, or whatever, um, that you tell funny stories, you laugh till your belly aches, you know? And I think that's, that's you know that's your brain that's one a behavior that has evolved that when the stress is just so awful it's like a pressure cooker has to be released to laughing i'm one of those people that if somebody falls up the stairs coming up on the bus <laughs> i laugh <laughs> my kids <laughs> it's terrible my kids used to say i found mommy stop laughing but apparently they're really close. I can't remember the areas of the brain, but they're so close in the brain that the laughter response is like a relief. Do you know? Oh, something awful right. nearly happened. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. But yeah. if you look yeah. on social media after there's been dreadful tragedies, it's not very long till kind of jokes emerge, which were so politically correct that I think sometimes, and I mean, I'm all for political correctness on huge issues, but Mm. I think we have to be careful of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and realizing that actually humor is a very great way to cope with horrific tragedy. You know, not laughing at someone, but, you know, trying to kind of uh, do that. And smiling, you know, smiling lowers your blood pressure, boosts your immune function. um, uh, It uh, um, lowers, did I say it lowers your blood pressure? Boost your immune function. Uh, um, Also, tiredness makes your brain start to malfunction. Perhaps I've been talking too long. Um, uh, It also um, releases feel-good factors like uh, Mm. serotonin, and it also um, helps the growth of of brain cells. And often people think of smiling as something that's reactive. You know, I've nothing to smile about. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and particularly during the pandemic, we're wearing masks. I actually have taken to walking by people and saying, hi, I'm smiling at, you know, because we're not getting that. Um, But it it really bothered me for quite some time. Why? So research shows that you can get all of those health benefits from a fake smile. And they actually, the psychologists did the research by just getting people to hold a pen or a pencil between their teeth. That's what I'm doing now, Richard. (laughs) And it just puts your muscles into the same um, sort of shape as a smile. And it produces all those health benefits. And that really triggered me. How does a synthetic smile, how does a fake smile fool the brain? Like at the end of the day, your brain is supposed to be the most complex known structure in the universe. And it's fooled by a fake smile. Yeah, yeah. And then actually, you know what? I woke up one morning and honest to God, it must have been one of those nights when I had a great night's sleep. And I went, it's because the brain 
is so clever. It's given us this really, really simple tool to get those health benefits. And just, you know, that's one of my tips. You know, I laughingly say smile five times a day. You know, I prescribe smiling five times a day. You know, once first thing in the morning, it's a brilliant way to start the day. And actually it's one of the sleep rituals that I talk about, you know, non-negotiable. When you wake up, smile, you know. It's my last thing at night. It is a great way to sort of end the day on that kind of positive feeling. Share at least one smile with somebody else because it's very hard not to smile back at someone who smiles at you. It spreads the health benefits, but it also gets you socially connected. And then I say you can do whatever you want with the other two smiles. But, you know, (laughs) I'm just being funny. But the thing is, smile more. You can smile as often as you want. It doesn't cost anything. And actually, really, fake it till you make it does work with smiling. So especially if you don't feel like smiling, uh, you know. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Sabina Brennan. Do check out her book. It is fantastic. Beating Brain Fog is uh, a really, really interesting and fantastic resource for everyone who's interested in looking after their brain. You can catch all the links on thedoctorskitchen.com and I will see you here next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.